What's the first word we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Therefore. And when we see that word therefore, we ask, what's it there for? So Paul, if you've been following us, and if you haven't, I would encourage you, especially in the book of Romans, if you've missed any of the past studies, please go back and listen to them. They're available online at calvarycentral.org. But Paul has been building a home, if you will. He's been building a house, and he's laid the foundation of that house on the truth that all of mankind is guilty before a perfectly righteous God. That all of mankind, both Jew and Gentile, Jew guilty under the law, Gentile guilty apart from the law, we fall short of God's glory. And in the the following chapters, after chapter 1 and 2, Paul has been making the case that every answer that the world has to offer to make a man or woman right with God simply fails. Every world religion other than Christianity is built on the lie that somehow through our performance, through our morality, through our good works, we can somehow be made right with God. We can deal with that guilt and that shame. We can deal with that separation through our actions. If we look internally and we dig deep enough and we sacrifice enough, then somehow our good works will make us right with God. And Paul has taught us, no, it is through justification in faith alone, or through faith alone in Christ alone. It is through the finished work of Jesus Christ that we receive his righteousness and we can stand before God. Not, not through anything that we can do in the flesh. So as Paul has really built the case off of what Jesus has made plain, that we are justified through faith alone in Christ alone, that is how a man or woman is made right with God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the word that we've seen Paul use is Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us, meaning it is put in our account, we receive the righteousness of God. So no amount of good works will get us to the place where we can stand in the presence of a perfect God. It has to be through the work of Jesus Christ. And now as he begins chapter 5, he says, therefore, therefore, having been justified by faith. He's going to take a look now at this doctrine of justification and explain the many benefits that come along with being right with God. It's almost like he takes justification and he begins looking at it from different angles, seeing all that it provides us as followers of Jesus Christ. What it means theologically, remember, theology means a right thinking about God, thinking rightly about who God is and what he has done. So we want to know who is God and what is the work that he has done to make us right with him. And then we want to know what does that look like practically? Because if we can't make it practical, then it doesn't mean anything. But when we truly understand the depths of who he is and what he's done, then it begins to play out in very real ways in our individual lives. So we are going to look at the theology of justification and the practical application of what it looks like played out. 
And right off the bat, Paul comes out swinging. In chapter five, verse one, therefore, having been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can move quickly past these first two verses, but there is so much there that we have to pause and unpack. What's the immediate benefit of justification? The moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And remember, when I say faith, I am not talking about just a mental acknowledgement of the existence of a historical Jesus. I am talking about our allegiance to Jesus. That word belief and faith in scripture means I trust him. I trust him personally. He is my God. He is not just a man that lived 2,000 years ago and he was a good teacher and he was a moral teacher and he has some useful things to say about how I should live. No, he is alive and he is king over my life. That is putting your faith in Jesus Christ. I care about what he has to say. I want to follow him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what is the immediate benefit? The moment you decided, I believe it. Jesus, take my life. I'm tired of trying to live this life on my own. I was created for something more and I find my purpose and my place in this world in you. What happened? Immediately, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. What does that tell us about who we were before we came to faith in Christ? We were enemies of God. We have rebelled against him, and Paul will get into that more as we look at Adam and that sin of rebellion. So theologically, the reality that we stand in is the moment we place our faith in Christ, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then he says, another theological truth, we have access now by faith into this grace in which we stand and we can rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So I don't know if you noticed this, but we're dealing with past, present, and future implications of justification. We have peace with God, so that's in many of our pasts. We have the ability to enter into the presence of God and receive his grace and stand in his grace. That's present tense. And then we rejoice in that future hope. So let's look at the peace that we have with God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. We'll put it up on the display for you also. This is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. What are the two groups? 
Jew and Gentile, we talked about this at the beginning of our study in Romans, one of the underlying themes throughout Paul's letters is unity in the church. There is a a deep divide between Jew and Gentile that even when they came to know Christ and they became born again, that divide had, had uh, ripple effects throughout the early church and Paul seeks to bring unity into the church to remind them that they are one body in Christ and don't we desperately need that kind of unity today? When so many people are divided over so many different things, we see that not only do we receive peace with God, but when we give our life to Christ and we walk in his spirit, we receive peace with one another. For he himself is our peace, Paul says, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed that barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two. How many denominations are there today? Thousands. Do you think God was saying, hey, you know what? One thing I could really use is like thousands of different denominations that speak ill of one another when they gather together. Now, I'm not saying, hey, Jesus also said I came to divide households. Father against son, mother against daughter. But we need to understand that that division comes when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and the world looks, like, looks at us like we're crazy. That's the division he was talking about. Within the body of Christ, between true born-again believers, there should be a unity of faith. Doesn't mean we're all the same. Doesn't mean we all think the same or act the same. But in the essential issues of who Jesus is and what he has done, we stand firm. That there is one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And no one will come to the Father but by him. Doesn't matter how old you are, what race you are, what your socioeconomic background is, I love that we can gather together as one body reconciled by God through Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, in himself, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but your fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The theology here is that we are one body in Jesus Christ. The practical application is let's start acting like it. Love covers a multitude of sins. Do we treat each other with respect and honor, the honor that we're due? Because we have received peace with God and with one another through Jesus Christ. And then even in that letter to Ephesus, Paul echoes exactly what we saw in Romans that we also give an access into God's grace. 
And it's in his grace that we stand. What does that mean? It sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? Again, in verse 18 in Ephesians, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. In Hebrews 4.16, as the author is explaining that Jesus is our great and final high priest, he writes, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And in 1 John 2, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So not only do we have peace with God, but we have access to his grace. So what does that mean for us? I have been a sinner long enough, and I have counseled other sinners long enough to know that we really don't know how to handle our guilt when we sin. For many people, when they sin, when they rebel against God as a born-again believer, they allow their feelings to dictate their theology. What do I mean by that? I've sinned and God wants nothing to do with me right now. I've sinned and God is ashamed of me. I've sinned and God's disappointed with me. And we feel this condemnation and we pull away from God for a week, a month, a year, long enough for that feeling of guilt and shame to fade. And then we step back into his presence again. Is that right thinking when it comes to our relationship with God? Is that right theology that God is mad at me for, what we're doing is we're applying worldly emotions and reactions to God instead of allowing his word to make clear how he feels about us. This is why right theology matters. We may be guilty, we may feel ashamed, we may, may feel condemned, but right theology invites us to come boldly before our Father and receive his grace. Maybe we're sitting here this morning and we're just covered in guilt. Like you you know what you were involved in last night. You know what you've been involved with over these last few weeks, these last few months, and you just feel separated from the presence of God. The Spirit of God does not bring condemnation. He brings sweet conviction and he calls us to draw near to him and stand in the finished work of Christ because now present tense, we have access to this grace in which we stand. We can stand not because we're worthy, but because of what Jesus has done for us. That's when right theology impacts the way we live. God, you know who I am. You know what I've done, but I'm going to stand in the grace of Jesus Christ knowing that I'm forgiven in your presence. So present past tense, we have peace. Present tense, we have that ongoing work of forgiveness and sanctification. And then we have this future hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does it mean to rejoice in God? Again, another term that sounds super churchy. But what does it mean to rejoice in the hope of glory, the glory of God? One definition that helps me when I think of the word rejoice is being reminded of joy. 
being reminded of joy, reminding of being reminded of what our future holds. You ever have those moments where, like my wife and I, we're getting away. Our 20th anniversary is coming up in September. So we're getting away for a week. And sometimes I'll be going about my day and that will pop into my mind. Oh yeah, in September we're getting away for a week. And you kind of get excited about that. You ever have a vacation in the future and you forget about it and then it crosses your mind and you're like, oh man, I'm looking forward to that. You're rejoicing in what's to come. You're being reminded of that future event. And Paul says our justification when we're made right with God and we have peace with God, we should be constantly reminded of what our future holds. So let me break it down maybe a little bit easier for you. We are, when we are justified, we are saved from sin's penalty. When we are justified, we are also being saved from sin's power. And again, when we are justified, one day we will be saved from sin's presence. That's why you'll see throughout the New Testament, Paul uses in his letters, we're saved by God's grace, we're being saved by God's grace, and one day we will be saved by God's grace because it has past, present, and future implications. We are saved right now from the penalty of sin if you've given your life to Christ. You are continuously being saved from sin's power as you stand in the righteousness of Christ and his forgiveness. And one day you will be saved from the presence of sin completely when you stand in the glory of the fullness of God's glory. Look at verse three. And I love this. Then Paul says, and not only that, and if you were to sum up this chapter in one phrase, that would be it. Not only that. Or he, Paul also uses the, the phrase much more. Now, if you were to ask me if our only benefit of becoming born again is that we have been made right before God, that we have peace with God, that's enough, isn't it? We desperately need to, to find that peace. But Paul says not only that. Now, it's, it's almost like an a infomercial where you get the slicer and they're all, that's not all. You also get this little peeler and that's not all. It's only for three low payments of $109.99 and free shipping. But you have to pay for handling. That, and that's for just something that's worthless. Paul's saying, look at justification. Look at the benefits of it. You have peace with God. You have continual access to the grace of God. You have that future hope knowing that one day you will stand in the glory of God, absent of all sin, but not only that. So you're thinking, okay, what's next? We also glory in tribulations. Oh, come on. We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. 
Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How can tribulations be a benefit? Man, I I was with you, Paul, when you were talking about I have access to the grace of God and he forgives me whenever I sin. I have that advocate who's standing before the Father. I like that, but to glory in our tribulations? What does that mean? Well, here's where it starts. Glorying in tribulations is the opposite of complaining. Glorying in our tribulations is not just surviving, not just grinning our teeth and bearing the trials of life, but we glory in them. Okay, you may say, Pastor, that doesn't help. Well, here's what I'm not saying. It does not mean that we enjoy our trials. It doesn't mean that when suffering hits, we're all, yeah, this is amazing, more, please. And I think some Christians think that way. That's how we're supposed to act. Hey, how you doing, brother? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Getting my leg amputated tomorrow, but life is fantastic. That's just phony. But Paul is saying when we are justified through faith in Christ, suffering begins to have purpose and meaning. The pain of this life has great eternal benefits. And the benefits coming out of our trials are going to be far greater than the pain of the trial itself. That means our hurting is worth it that our suffering in this life is, is worth it. Isn't that what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17? For our light affliction, he calls it. Our light affliction, and he has described his light affliction in ways that I would not describe suffering to be light affliction. He says, I've been stoned, I've been imprisoned, I've been beaten, I've been thrown out of town, I've been lied about, I've been falsely accused, And then he says, for our light affliction, which is for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He says, I glory in my suffering because I know that God is doing a work in it. Doesn't make it easy, it doesn't make it enjoyable, but I am able to persevere through that trial because I know that God is doing a work in it. Again, that is right theology. That pain and suffering in this life has a purpose. That's the promise of God's word. So what does it look like lived out? We can push through without Complaining about God and complaining about others. Guys, we are not pushing through. If in the midst of our suffering, we start lashing out at others, we start blaming others, we start complaining about others. Isn't that kind of our default mindset when we're hurting? We look for the closest person to take that out on. Unfortunately, sometimes it's our spouse. But perseverance is saying, I know that God is doing a work. So here's where wrong theology can get us off track. 
Wrong theology teaches us that pain and suffering means somehow we are missing God's best. That maybe we're not tithing enough. Maybe we're not jumping through enough hoops. My son is sick. I'm praying for healing. God's not healing him. There must be something wrong with my faith. But right theology says God is in control and I trust him and I will pray for my son because I know that's what the word of God says, but I trust God more than I trust my feelings. And I pray that his will will be done because through the pain in this life, I know that he is working it out for our good and for his glory. See, right theology gives suffering purpose. And God takes what the enemy means for destruction in our lives and he uses it for good. And so let's talk about this really important thing. If we get our minds right in the midst of our suffering, if we tie our suffering to the reality that we are God's child through justification by faith, that we are one of his kids and he's shaping us and he's molding us into the image of his son and he uses those hard and difficult times to do an amazing work that is far greater than the pain that we're going through if we can really hold fast to that promise then something amazing happens and as Americans we don't see a lot of this but we begin to persevere things get hard but that doesn't stop us from continuing the mission that we've been called to by Christ. As so many people today, things get hard and they give up. Things get difficult and they give up. The marriage is more challenging than I thought it would be. Hey, I signed up to be served, not to actually serve. My spouse was supposed to meet all my needs. Things are really difficult. I'm bailing. I didn't know being a dad would be this difficult or being a mom would be this difficult, so we bail. And we don't always leave the home. We just completely disconnect from training up our kids because it's just too hard and it takes too long. Man, serving my church family is too big of a commitment. Or I have a vision to, or God's given me a vision and we step out and we're obedient to it but we face opposition and then we're done because it's too hard. Our culture loves easy. We've created a culture of comfort and we're just not equipped to handle difficult things. But here's the problem. Wherever the gospel is revealed, the gospel is opposed. And if we're going to fulfill the mission that we've been called to, we need to understand trials and tribulations are going to come. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But we rarely get to see that reality because we're not pushing through. COVID has made us a little comfortable, hasn't it? We've gotten into some routines that, hey, maybe life is a little easier if I just don't leave the house. If I just don't make any effort, I can just sit back and be a consumer instead of realizing the plan and the purpose God has for me. We need to push past that broken idea. So right thinking leads to 
perseverance. Mike Winger has done an, uh, just a really good job in his study on the book of Romans. And one of the, the things he points out as a pastor, he says one of the characteristics he values the most in his ministry is people who are willing to endure through difficult times. Because it's not if difficult times come, but when. And it's so easy to start with a bang, but when things get difficult, we can bail. But what good is a gifted teacher or preacher or worship leader or children's ministry leader or counselor if they're constantly giving up? How deep can our roots grow if we're hopping from one church to the next to the next because when everything, when everything's get hard and there's interpersonal relationship issues that we have to deal with, we move on. Loyalty is a, really a forgot, forgotten characteristic. That's how I make my points. It's like a soundtrack. Thanks for hammering that home. So here, here we go. Paul says, right theology, when it comes to trials and suffering, leads to perseverance. We begin to start p- pushing through fighting through. And it doesn't end there. As we fight through, what does it build in us? This wonderful thing called character. Again, another forgotten art. Oh, we like charisma, don't we? When we see a charismatic teacher, we're like, yeah, that guy's anointed by God. He's been preaching for two months, but man, that is God's man right there. Check in with him 10 years later. Is he still doing it? Is he still faithful? Is he faithful in his marriage? Is he faithful to his kids? Is he faithful to the congregation? It is easy to be charismatic for 10 minutes. But it is much more difficult to be faithful over years and years and years. But in our culture, we have that twisted. The term character, it means tried. It means tested. It means proven. It takes time. That's why I want to celebrate those of you who have walked with Jesus for so long. I've said this many times for Pastor John and Becky to faithfully serve this church family for over 30 years. It doesn't happen by accident. Ministry is difficult and I'm not just playing a little violin for you guys, but ministry for all of us Being of the same mind, going in the same direction, not turning on one another, that is difficult because we're we're messed up. And we bump into each other all the time. We offend one another all the time. But to push through and endure, then we become tried and tested and proven and we become a person that can be trusted because People have seen how we have handled those situations time and time again. It means that we're consistent in our convictions. We're consistent in our behavior. And so I, I celebrate you guys whose scripture would called, call you elders. You're in your 50s, your 60s, in your 70s, in your 80s. And you've pushed through and you fought for your marriage. 
and you fought for your kids and you fought for your church family and when you felt like running, you didn't. Why? Because you trust Jesus and you know he's working out something far better in you That's why in 1 Timothy 5, Paul warns Timothy, don't lay hands on someone too quickly. Now, he's not talking about fighting. He's saying, when you're making a public profession that this is our elder, this is our deacon, this is our leadership, don't jump at that opportunity too early. Wait to see what manner of men and women they are before you start calling them leaders within your church. And 1 Timothy 3, as Paul gives Timothy qualifications for an elder, he says, not a novice. That novice might be extremely gifted, but they're new to the faith, give them time. Because if you lay hands on them too early, they may become puffed up. And through that pride, he may fall and fall into the same condemnation as the devil, where we start to think it's about us. Oh, they picked me because of my gifts, my abilities, my talents. They got a good one with me. Man. It takes a little life experience to be humble, doesn't it? We got to live a little to realize this life is not about us. And then he even says when he talks about qualifications for deacons, he says, but let these also first be tested then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. And so I want to encourage you elders. I know I've been leaning on you guys a little bit over the last few months, but I want to repeat this one more time. Because of your character, we need you. Because of your experience, we need you. Mike Winger says that old people are younger people with experience. And we We need that. So I would ask that you would be in prayer about how God would use you in the lives of of future generations. The younger people in our church. The husbands and wives that need a little bit of wisdom when it comes to raising kids. And how to balance ministry and work and raising kids and still be involved All right, right theology about suffering produces perseverance and that perseverance over time brings character and that character produces what? A hope, an assurance. Well, what does that mean? In Proverbs, the author of Proverbs writes, hope deferred makes the heart sick. That means if we're hoping for something and it never happens, we get really disappointed. It's hard to continue to want something and it never come to pass. Have you ever had, unfortunately, maybe a a parent that promised the world but never delivered? I try to be careful with my kids and I don't always do a great job, but I don't want to say we're doing something and and we 
don't end up doing it, they'll say I'm pretty poor at it, but I, I don't want to give false expectations. But we've all been in that place where we've wanted something so bad, but it's never happened. But what Paul is saying is through right thinking about suffering, if we're willing to persevere and through that perseverance, character is built, that hope will not disappoint. How many of you have fought through marriage the difficult years and you look back and you're so glad you did because your marriage is so much stronger because of it? Does that, anyone say, hey, that's us? Our marriage is deeper and more meaningful because we went through the hard times. That is God being faithful to this promise. I've been in ministry now full time for 15 years, 20 total. And it's been difficult. But I look back and God has been faithful through it all and I wouldn't trade it for the world because his hope doesn't disappoint. That's, God's promises being practically lived out. If we're willing to push through and he builds character, we will look back at how he's been faithful through it all and say, yes, God is good. But sometimes we never get to the other side. And that's what, guys, some of us are li- thinking back on the, the areas that we bailed and we wish we, wish we would have st- stuck it out. Thank goodness we stand in the grace of God. But now moving forward, maybe our prayers and God end this trial. It's God, do whatever you want to do in the midst of it. My oldest son is 16 years old. Man, that's hard. Someone told me early on, and you know what, you get advice when you're young and you're raising kids and you just don't know it until you're in the middle of it. They told us that when they're young, it's physically hard. As they get older and they become teenagers, it is mentally and spiritually hard. And that is so, so true. But I'm holding fast to some of your encouragement to me, stick it out. Not that I'm gonna put him up for adoption or something, but, <laughs> but fight, fight through it. It gets better. And I am, I'm so grateful for my kids. Guys, the only reason that we can fight through, especially when it comes to relationships, is because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts. We're not loving one another with our own love. We're not loving our wives and our husbands with our own life. We're not love. We're not loving our kids with our own love. We're not loving our enemies with our own love. We are loving them with the love that God has poured out into our hearts. It's the only way it's possible. Look at verse 6. For when we were still without strength. Now we're going to look at, man, Paul is just, I wish Paul could stand here and preach this. Look forward to spending some time with him. Now he's going to talk about the type of person Jesus justifies. This is the type of person that Jesus saves. And again, you look at all the other world religions and you ask them, okay, what kind of person does God want to save? They'll say the one who is doing righteous works. There's a a mixture of faith and works, but there is works in there. Whoever is earning 
that right standing? This is how Paul would answer that question. What kind of person does God save? For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the godly. Right? Christ died for the godly? For the righteous? For the Boy Scout? For why we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's that phrase, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So I ask again, what kind of person did Christ come to die for? The weak, ungodly sinner who's an enemy of God. That's who Jesus said, yeah, that's the guy I want. That's the woman I want. That sinner. That one who's rebelled against me. That one, the one that speaks evil of me. That's the one who I want to save. Not those who have earned it or shown themselves to be lovable or have something to offer to the relationship. Don't you understand that all of the other world religions that say that we can get right with God through our works, they detract from God's love. Do you understand that? That's what Paul is saying here, that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. If Jesus died for me because I'm lovable, doesn't that take away something from his love? The quality of his love? The unconditional nature of his love? Doesn't it cheapen his love for me? If there's something in us that is lovable and worth saving, that cheapens the love of God. But God demonstrates the nature of his own love by showing love to those who don't deserve it. It's not about us. It's about his nature. It's about the quality of his affection and his love. What did Jesus say? I've come to heal the sick. Because those who are well, and I would kind of put a a subtitle under that, because what he was really saying was those who think they are well. I think he makes that plain throughout the Gospels. The self-righteous. I didn't come to save them. Until they get to a point where they realize that they are guilty before God. I didn't come to save them. I came to save the sick. And his love for us and his desire to save us comes exclusively from his own nature and his character. It is not about us. The moment we add something to it, we dilute his love. Does that make sense? So this idea that we can earn his affection, man, that makes light of his unconditional love. Paul says, a select few will die for a righteous man. Even good people 
Paul says, will die for someone they think deserves it. Even a, some people will die for someone they think is good. That's the best our world has to offer. But dying for someone who is your enemy? That's otherworldly. But Christ died for the weak, ungodly sinners among us. Christ died for the men and women who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Christ died for the soldiers who gambled for his clothes and struck him in the face for fun and then said, hey, which one of us hit you? If you're the son of God, you know, right? Which one of us hit you? And in his mind, he's thinking, I forgive them. He died for the crowd that chose to free a murderer instead of him. And then on the cross, after they had pierced his wrists and his feet, impaled him to a cross and lifted him up, what did he say as he looked down? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's a different kind of love, guys. That's a love, that's loving the unlovable, because Jesus himself is love. Now, I want to take just a a quick moment here to turn down a side street that I think is really important. If you recall, in the Gospels, a man came to Jesus, testing him, and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he said, the second is like it. And what's that second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he spoke to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Because they weren't even loving others with that kind of love. But that's not what he told his disciples, is it? In that upper room, before he was crucified as he shared that last Passover meal with them, and then he got up from the table and washed their feet. Then he says this to them in John 13, 34. He says, I have a new commandment for you. I have a different kind of love for you. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That I am so inadequate for that. This is the kind of love that loves others, especially when they're undeserving, that loves our enemies that loves those who have nothing to offer us. Jesus says, yeah, love people that way. Loving others as you love yourself, that's not enough. That's not supernatural love. I want you to love others the way that I have loved you. All right, verse 11. And not only that, see Paul, keeps adding and adding and adding. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So again, I want to pause here. I think I asked this question and we never answered it. What does it mean to rejoice in God? 
How are we reminded of our joy in God? And I was reminded of a graduation that we went to. It was a graduation for, our, um, I think it was my, my, uh, my brother, if I remember right. And uh, people of all ages were gra- graduating. And there was an older gentleman, they, they called his name, and he walked up and he got his diploma. And I hear a little voice in the audience yell, that's my dad. And, I'm like, and everyone was like, oh man, that's really... That's really adorable. That young man was rejoicing in his dad. He was seeing what his dad had accomplished and it gave him an immense amount of joy and happiness. He didn't do it. He didn't earn it. But because he loves his dad so much, it was almost like he was living it out through his dad. And I think about that and I'm like, yeah, that's rejoicing in God. I look at what God has done for me I look at the work that God has done in the lives of those I care about the most. I, I see what God is doing in my, my wife. She makes me so proud every day, and I know it's because of what God's doing in her, and it makes me rejoice in who God is. I look at what he's doing at our family, in our family here at Calvary Central, and I'm just reminded of his goodness. That's rejoicing in God through our Lord Jesus Christ when we are reminded of all these promises that Paul's talking about through our justification, how can we not want other people to experience the same? That's rejoicing in God. Okay, verse 12, we'll keep moving here. Running out of time. Therefore, with all of this in mind, all of these benefits, all of this blessing, all because Christ died for us and we took a hold of that free gift and we accepted his death and his resurrection, all because of this, then Paul goes on to explain, man, it just took one man for sin to enter the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Who was that one man? Adam. And then Paul goes on kind of just a a tangent here. We add the parentheses, but he's just kind of thinking through this. He says, for until the law, sin was still in the world. Again, he's talking to the Jewish person here. He says, the law, before the law, sin was still in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. He's saying before the, the law, people were still dying. So it's not that the law brought death. Sin was already causing death and it reigned from Adam to Moses before the law. Even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. Okay, there's seems a little confusing here but let's understand. Adam is what's called a type of Christ. There's type and there's anti-type. And we hear anti-type and we think it's against a type, but that's not the case here. A type is the form of something, but not that something. Christ is the anti-type. Adam is a kind of Christ. David was a kind of Christ. Joseph and many of the Old Testament heroes of the faith, they are like Christ in certain ways, but they are very different from him in others. So Adam is like Christ in that he is a representative of mankind. Through Adam's actions, history or mankind has forever been impacted. 
So the moment Adam rebelled against God and said, God, you're not enough. I want to be God over my own life. I know you said don't eat of this tree. I'm going to do it my way. Corruption entered humanity. And from that point on, we have been affected by Adam. Adam is a representative of mankind. But Paul also says Jesus is a representative of mankind because through his death and his resurrection, all of humanity has been affected. Adam introduced death. Jesus brings life. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the offense. Justification is not like the sin of rebellion. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came for one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in just justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. This is the kind of passage we move quickly through and we think, I don't know exactly what he's talking about, but I'm sure it's good, and we move on in our devotional life. Guys, here's what Paul is saying. The sin of rebellion is not the same as the sin of justification. Here's, Here's wrong theology again, that good and evil is at war, and there's a duality between good and evil. They're equal opposing forces. You know what the yin and yang symbol is, right? You guys remember that? I don't know why it was so popular when I was in high school, but it's, it's, it's darkness and light. The light has a little bit of darkness and the darkness has a little bit of, of light and it's really a, a Chinese philosophical concept that is describing how opposite and contrary forces complement one one another, that they're equal to one another and they're necessary and that they're good and they may give rise to each other as they conflict with one another. So all that to say good and evil are equal to one another. Is that what scripture teaches? We feel that way sometimes. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we're like, man, evil is stronger But why does the Apostle John begin his gospel with the statement, light has come into the world and the darkness could not overcome it? We translate it and some of our translations comprehend it. And I don't advocate crossing out words in scripture, but that is not a good translation. It's overcome it. Darkness could not overcome overcome the light. That's why John also writes in his epistle, greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. Wrong theology views the battle between good and evil as a battle of equal forces. That is not the case. Let me just remind you in closing of the final battle in Revelation chapter 20. This is the final battle between good and evil. Satan deceives the nations and he gathers them all together for this final battle. And we learn that the opposition opposition to God, you can't even count them because they are like the sand on the sea. So Satan gathers this massive army together and they surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. 
and fire will come down from God out of heaven and devour them. The end. It's not much of a battle, is it? That's how it ends. That's the final battle between good and evil, and it's not a battle at all. We need to stop looking at the evil in the world and giving it more power than it's due. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Right theology matters. It's not just about being a good student. What we think about God matters. And we need to make sure that what we believe and the promises we hold on to come from his word and not our feelings. Our feelings cannot shape our theology. Our theology must shape our feelings. Let's pray. God, you're so good and we are so thankful that you use the weak things of the world to confound the, the wise. You're just looking for those who are willing to trust you. So I pray this morning that we as your church, as your body, that we would really learn to trust in you personally. That we may look at the trials of our lives and say, God is in control. You are doing a good work. And that we would push through that we'd find ourselves consistently standing in your grace, that we wouldn't allow our sin to drive us away from your presence, but we would allow sin to drive us to your presence because it's in your presence that you do that work in us and you equip us to live the life that you've called us to in your spirit through the love that you've poured into our, our hearts. So I pray for those this morning that feel driven from your presence because of your sin. I pray that they would see that that is not why Jesus came and died. You're inviting them to come closer to you. Does that mean we should sin so that your grace abounds? Paul's gonna answer that question in the next chapter and we know the answer is God forbid. But when we do fall, we know that we fall into your arms. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.